Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. We're here for another episode of In the Landscape. Thank you all so much for tuning in and listening this week while we cover another topic on landscape design, (laughs) whether it's planting or pruning or designing or thinking through how space is used and the ways we interact with landscape. We try to cover it all and we try to bring a new perspective every week, which often involves are doing some research, listening to listener feedback, talking to each other, and making sure we're providing something that we hope is interesting, informative, and eh, enjoyable. Some being lighthearted, too, <laughs> if it's called for. Yeah, absolutely. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Katherine Sadler, and with me in studio is my co-host, Charles Sadler. Charles Sadler. I realize I do go by Kate. (laughs) Catherine is my formal name. Goodness. Um, But I I do go by Kate Sadler on this podcast and uh, Kate and Charles. So we're here every week talking about these topics just because we love it so much. We're truly, truly grateful for everyone who tunes in and anyone who connects with us on social media or through some of our educational offerings. Super exciting for this to be a dialogue. I think I went on and on when we first started the podcast about, you know, it's really us conversing and then it goes to the editor for a little while and then we post it. And I can almost forget because it's kind of a slow conversation with our listeners, but there's still such opportunity for feedback and engagement. And that's, that's something that's really exciting about the medium. You don't just have to wait to send us like a letter and (laughs) like a letter to the editor to, to propose an idea or share a photo. So with that in mind, today's topic, we've, we've done some, we tried our hand at a series recently. So oh, um, right. that was fun because yeah. really thinking it through, not just thinking like in a matter of hours planning, but planning over a period of weeks and then refining when you talk about one area, then it makes you look at back at the other. It was the various scales of landscape from rural to suburban to urban. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. And then, of course, uh, last week was our shade garden episode, which was near and dear to my heart because it was relaxing and (laughs) nice to think through the green. And, you know, we we sometimes have topics that we touch on. We've been at this for over a year now. Uh, I think we're up to episode 62. So that's a lot. That's a pretty big back catalog. If you haven't gone back to listen, uh, there are hopefully some topics that might resonate with you, but (laughs) you just have to be a little patient with the audio quality. As with (laughs) many, many podcasts, it tends to develop over time and and the rapport tends to develop over time, your your patter, how you're going to do it. Because that was new. I mean, you you are in entertainment or you've been in entertainment with voice performances and educating musicians, but it's, and I do speaking, but... Mm -hmm. But to be, to create something together, that mm-hmm. was new. That was new. Yeah. Okay. So I should get on with it. We're really talking today about public-private partnerships. So maybe that, I don't know, maybe it was like a long winding way of getting to the idea of, of working together to create something unique. And it's so interesting. I just realized that, of course, our perspective is going to be limited to maybe the cities we've lived in or what we know about the United States in particular. Mm -hmm. And this would be a fascinating topic to hear from listeners around the world 
how does the public-private interface work where you are? Is there, are there similar partnerships to preserve and provide access to landscapes? And how does that kind of function? And what are some of our favorites, I guess? So. Some of the, you think of well-known spaces in the world, whether it's a museum, a park, maybe it's a campus of some kind. Some of those are, the design comes about through a competition. Mm. Or it's, sometimes it's very rigorous and it's very public. And sometimes that can launch some people's careers that they're, you know, a recent graduate and they apply. And, and then there's other times where it's not that transparent, where mm-hmm. it's, it's a board it selects people and then a park magically or a landscape appears. And there's all different ways of accomplishing and then determining who, who are the users? How is it going to be used? And then like really envision, it's hard to envision like we go back to Central Park so often, that's almost the archetypal American landscape, one of like the first major designed American landscapes that I know of. And so there were no ball fields, there were no playgrounds to my knowledge. That's, that has evolved, mm-hmm. but it's been pretty rigorously preserved also. Well, and maybe that's a tip to our listeners who may well do this already. But one of the things I found really fascinating was when we were living in this town just north of New York City right on the Hudson River. So you could look out over over the river from our backyard. And they had a waterfront area that was sort of prime for development. It was a brown field, is what you would call it. So it had had some sort of industry, industrial process happening there. It was a wire factory. Oh, wow. And the waterfront is a whole mile, which is like over 5,000 feet. It's a lot of, you don't necessarily see it all at once Mm -hmm. because the the views, there's trees, there's homes, businesses, but it's it's a massive, a, a mile of waterfront. Which you can imagine is just a tremendous financial prize for developers, for the municipality to sort of recoup. I don't know, whatever they invest in the rehabilitation, I'm sure can be sought after in property taxes and things like that. So there's just mm-hmm. this huge web of interactions that happen when you're trying to develop one of these partnerships. And there were numerous public interest meetings. So you could, you know, maybe if you're somebody just getting started out in landscape design and and this is something you aspire to do, or you're someone in your town that wants better insight into what's going on, you know, they, the your town hall should have a message board, should tell you what's going on. And you might have an opportunity to sit in on some of these meetings and kind of see what's the process like. I suppose maybe that's a little harder now <laughs> in the moment, at the moment, just because, you know, I'm not sure how many of these meetings are taking place in person, but there's still a, a wealth of information. Maybe you can see iterations of the design and where people have changed it because of objections or thinking through accessibility and things like that. And, and that just might be interesting to people who find, you know, landscape architecture a field of study. And I wonder if those are public, if there's, if it's a video conference. Yeah, my guess is that must be, be occurring because be. mm-hmm. you yeah. have to move I mean, to take to freeze a project for mm-hmm. a year or two while we're in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's not really reasonable. I mean, there's f- public money, there's tax money being you know allocated for these public spaces. Yeah. So I'd be curious how that's happening. <laughs> yeah. So if you happen to know, <laughs> feel free to share with us. We'll update listeners on a future episode. All right. So you talked about one of our favorites, Central Park, of course. Um, New York City has a really interesting requirement for 
it's, I guess it's not a requirement, but a deal that was made with developers to include. Because if you've ever been to New York, you can often go right into atriums, atria, I don't oh, know what right. the is, in these huge high rises. There are these little parks tucked in and it's essentially belongs to the city. It's public space but it was developed by whoever was doing the building or whatever it is. Oh, you right. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, some of the, I mean, some of the details I know, uh, William White and Jane Jacobs were, in the 20th century, were innovators, pioneers on how, uh, doing research, how public space is used. And New York City was a home base, for, I believe, for them, and it included other cities. So the goal was, how do we create equitable, useful public spaces. And so with, with developers, so if you own a plot where you're going to build a building or renovate or the deal went, there were setback requirements. So when you look at New York City buildings, when they get quite tall, the building narrows as it goes up often, if you, if you really study. It. And there's certain periods where that was done more than others, I believe. So after, after you get up to 20 stories, it can't that footprint needs to shrink. So the buildings step back. And so that allows more light. It's not as domineering. And then to build higher, so the, the private interest owned the land. If they had public access, which is often these pocket parks or vest pocket parks or all different types of names, then in some cases, they were allowed to build a taller building. It was this public-private give and take. So there's some famous ones are Paley Park that's in Midtown Manhattan. So the back of that, you walk in, you take a couple steps up from the street or, or ramp. There's a small kiosk where they sell light refreshments. And it's quite small. I mean, it's maybe the size, it's smaller than, than a tennis court. Maybe even half the size of a tennis court is the whole park. <laughs> and the, the whole back wall is a waterfall. Mm-hmm. And there are probably a type of a locust, a honey locust tree that's pretty closely planted. So you have sense of overhead mm-hmm. and there's comfortable like European style movable chairs. So it's very simple, but everything that's there really works. And I think that's what's so remarkable about those New York City parks, having lived in, in Manhattan and, and stumbling upon them. I mean, you may not, I'm sure there are resources online for like where to, how, where to find them and how to do a little tour, but it's when mm-hmm. you're, when you're just like, thirsting for that retreat from the city that you stumble on this, you know, you're like in Midtown, you've got your hot dog from the cart, whatever. You're like, I just need a place to sit down and then you see it. And it's so, there's like this, I guess, alchemy almost Mm -hmm. where you are really transported away from, it's like, it is the city because it is so small and perfectly situated where it is. So it's of the city and then not of the city in a way that is very, very special, I think. And so I'm glad that they, they did whatever consultation they needed to, to say, like, you need spaces like this in right. a city. And without that, the crush of buildings and the weight of all those people and, and no respite, no sort of like breathing room is too much, you know? Like a pressure, it's a pressure relief valve. Yeah, it's for like, sure. For sure. And so that's integrated i could even think of lincoln center and like you know that very well from mm-hmm. working there and like like that vicinity there's overall the campus is an international style which is more or less like white marble or a white material 
very open plazas, mm -hmm. like mid 20th century cutting edge architecture. When I visited there, there's more and more vegetation. Mm -hmm. So even as you're exiting, I think toward Broadway, there's a thin strip, like a very angular, long triangular planting. Mm -hmm. And there's, I think there's bald cypress there now, with very woodsy, like you'd see in a, like a Southern swamp. Mm -hmm. And so this, to make the city more humane, plant, plants make a city more humane. There's this compatibility, it softens it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't detract from the modernism or that, you know, that clarity of, you know, beautiful, clean lines. Mm -hmm. It's uh, actually, it's like it, it almost accentuates it. Mm -hmm. I think it helps. And it's sort of true for some of that architecture where those buildings, maybe in the Art Deco style, they're very ornate, closer to ground level. So that as you're looking up, you're seeing like the scale can change in the city. And, you know, those buildings are so huge. But having a tree next to the building, like, yes, it's that you're not trying to, the scale of the tree is not meant to complement the building per se. It's meant to help ground you, <sighs> in, on, you know, on a streetscape that's human scale amongst architecture that there's no way. I mean, you just feel dwarfed by it. Yeah, Sometimes in a great way. I mean, it's really, <laughs> we obviously haven't had an opportunity to travel back to New York in a while. And Since March. It. <laughs> so, I was there well, it's March. been longer for me. And you so. were, was it yeah, the not August. previous fall, maybe yeah. September? Well, we went to upstate New York in like November. Oh, and it was right. August when we came out. So it's been yeah, like more than a year. <sighs> we'll travel again someday. There's fall color of people that are working there for us and and other people we correspond mm. with, there's some nice fall color. But I think if there's not a lot of fall color in New York City that I know of, but mm. in Upper New England, there is now. Yeah, I always say I miss it right now. I won't miss it in January. So. Right. The winds, people that <laughs> totally haven't experienced yeah. the wind tunnel, like oh. the, the leather jacket or something that's like wind resistant is so essential. Mm -hmm. Like a traditional wool coat, the, wool, the wind cuts right through that. Yeah. Remember. Well, that's a little aside. <laughs> we reminisce <laughs> about New York City and just kind of talk about the the essential nature of public private space. I, I think there's just a sort of a push and a pull to the way cities or even other space suburbs are set up. Like how much of that space is for development and commerce, and how much of it is for public consumption. And it just seems that the trend over the last, well, maybe since Central Park was developed, but over the last several decades, has been an awareness that 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 public space is is vital for the health of the people that live there. Right. It's for, it's for the greater good. Mm -hmm. If you're uh, capitalist it's for the greater good of that if you're a socialist it's for the greater good of that it's the another precedent that i study the front of the metropolitan museum that's mm -hmm. on backs into central park in new york on fifth avenue when that was redone in like the last five years it's maybe a couple of years or so when it was completed mm -hmm. so there's the main component they added was a lot more trees mm -hmm. so it's very formal i mean the building is a is based on classicism and so it's a european classicism of the alleys of linden trees and then there's groves of uh of pollarded london plane trees there's movable furniture like you find in a french park mm -hmm. there's very animated water fountains quite large very low to the ground mm -hmm. and then people of course sit on the steps of the museum that's like a new york moment 
So that space, it's, I would say it's more friendly to the public. Mm-hmm. That's part of the design. Mm-hmm. And there's even up against the facade, there was like, like a gold sumac and there's Southern Magnolia, which a critic might say this is so suburban or so, you know, pedestrian, but it's actually pedestrian friendly. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. alleys are very formal, but when you get up close, there's like, there's like a fine texture. And when, if you're flying by in a taxi cab, you wouldn't notice that finer detail, mm. but, this, but when, when you're up close, you do. So it's quite magical how that was done, that it works at the, like my professors would say, you need to know the tree so well that at a highway speed, you could identify it. Mm, very good. <laughs> but then it should also work when you're sitting there, you know, having a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So, I mean, clearly New York, a great example of public-private interaction there but what are some other examples that you found well this past weekend for the 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 outing <laughs> the, that are that my son and i've been doing lately exploring the houston public spaces <laughs> yeah full disclosure i'm in the middle of finishing my dissertation so hopefully defending this this semester which um for anyone who's done it <laughs> It's just a mess of writing many, many pages. So I have been hunkering down and getting writing done, but it's it's given you an opportunity to get out and go see all these spaces with our son and very exciting. So yeah, tell us more. Well, it's, it's like, how would you define it? There are public components of it. The Menel Collection, which is an art collection. It's an mm-hmm. art museum. It's in a suburban, well, it's it's urban. It's a, it's a neighborhood with bungalows, so it's which so the scale of the residences is very small, right? And the museum, it's a Renzo Piano design, who's of course people describe him as a master of the Whitney Museum. That's not that's by the High Line. It's it makes you feel welcome. It's very on mm. a pedestrian scale. It's a welcoming as opposed to monumental architecture that sort of you're in awe of, but you wouldn't say it's friendly. Mm-hmm. And so his building, to me, it's quite successful. It's in this bungalow neighborhood, and it's but it's a modern 20th century building. So what's neat about that is, and there's other iterations of the campus. There's been a master plan that was done. Michael Van Valkenburg's office has been involved, I think, since 2015, maybe. So it's it's a it really is a campus, but it's very permeable. Mm-hmm. So where so it could be a private residence, and then next door could be a bookstore or a cafe for the museum. There's sidewalks. There's an open green. So it's a lawn with trees, which is the size of a city block, I think, or so. And so I was there on a weekend day and there were people reading and picnicking. And you know, it's, it's quite exciting to see these spaces beautifully designed. And the way they're used is very diverse. Mm-hmm. That one section... There's the main museum that's, I mean, I don't know what inside the scale of it, but it looks like it's like about a three or four story building. And then there are additional, there's a Cy Twombly gallery. There's a drawing collection museum. There's a Rothko, as in Mark Rothko, the fine artist chapel. So the, I think it's part of the drawing museum, a very cutting edge building, which we went to. Mm-hmm. And so the last thing I would think of is that this cutting-edge modern courtyard, Michael Van Balkenberg design, would be a playground. But mm-hmm. that's you know, that's how it was being used. There are benches. It's a it's a square with benches around, it, and the, the benches are gorgeous. They're these long, 
just clean, it's hard to describe, just clean wooden benches that stretch all the way along the wall. Right. Yeah. The scale is enormous, mm-hmm. but it's also welcoming. Yes. Yeah. And so, materials help. Right. Yeah, every, that building and that landscape, there's an incredible amount of restraint. Mm-hmm. There's like a medium-sized gravel and there are larger stones, very weathered in age, where it looks like they've been uh, sawn. So you're seeing mm-hmm. a cross section with lots of veining. And then there are, like the one courtyard that we were in, there's a type of an oak, maybe a bur oak. So there's five oak trees, mm-hmm. this courtyard, gravel and stones. And my son and I were jumping, as other kids were, jumping from one sort of flat boulder to the other. And- I could see it. It's interesting because... We we saw it without children playing in it, but there's something, I don't know if whimsical is even the right word. There's something about, there's a feel about it that's almost like the feeling I was saying about the shade garden last week, where it's like, it's just inviting, it invites you to be there. Yeah, good point. That, that That's how it felt. There's no barriers. Mm. There's no signs. You know, stay off. Don't yeah. touch, or there's not a, there's not a fence. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's completely safe. These trees are safe. They're pretty lo- pretty large trees. The gravel is pretty safe. So mm-hmm. it's, there was even, our son found, uh, it was a small toy car, like a matchbox kind of, that it, that another child had left mm-hmm. uh, that he was playing with. So, I mean, just to show the spaces, my guess is that the couple who founded it, the Mennels, I mean, that that would delight them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they created mm-hmm. this cutting edge collection of art. It's open to the public. The museum is, I believe the museum is always free. So it's, Mm -hmm. there's an endowment, but there were signs I noticed that said, this is the acceptable behavior. Like Mm. you can't have an open fire, Mm. can't shoot off fireworks. They don't want alcohol. You know, they don't want people to consume alcohol. Right. So there's some guidelines, but then beyond that, I didn't see, there was a security vehicle, Mm -hmm. but I didn't see any security people and people. Mm -hmm. People live in that neighborhood. We happen, we didn't, we don't live there, but we visited. But people were very well behaved and it was diverse, all different ages, backgrounds. It's fascinating to see something that's well designed and beautiful can have so many uses. Yeah. And that when when we have an opportunity to make a space our own, we get to, you know, invest in it our our energy and and our our love for it and you know that feeling of like oh something has been discarded I'll pick it up and, and toss it in the trash you know that you almost mm-hmm. you almost get to take ownership of it even though it's a public space but then that ownership extends to protecting it and caring for it and stuff like that so I can appreciate the the openness of not having security kind of like staring you down every five minutes. So. Right. It didn't feel, yeah. I mean, like being in a museum where someone is like, oh, you're getting too close or like yes, a buzzer goes right. off. Yeah. yeah. And like a neat little factoid, the neighborhood, the museum started to acquire these bungalows mm-hmm. in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So some of them are privately owned and some are part of the museum campus. And they're more or less all painted metal gray. Hmm. which is like a mushroomy color. So there's, I mean, that's a component of design. How do you have this sort of diverse space unified? Well, mm. there's like like the, the color of the houses is unified, the walks, the plant palette. The architecture of the building is very different. There's bungalow style, and then there's like cutting edge modernism. There's nothing that really competes with each other though. And there's space between 
one cutting edge architecture and another. Mm -hmm. And then there's these elements that unify it, the plants and the color palette. All right. It's a very special place, that metal collection. And it's mm -hmm. interesting too, how cities have different scale depending on their, their landscape, so to speak. Like San Francisco has a certain feel and Manhattan has a certain feel. And, you know, I mean, I'm not just going to go give you a laundry list of cities. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. sure our listeners can think of their, their favorites, but that really informs some of what can be done in a space. So are there organizations that help private citizens to do something about preserving public space? And, and how does that typically work? Well, an organization I've become familiar with I mean, over quite a few years now is called the Trust for Public Land. Hmm. And their, sort of, their mantra is land for people. Okay. So we often talk about on this podcast, the Garden Conservancy. Mm -hmm. And so that's going and identifying like really special private gardens that have been developed that should be preserved for the public, essentially, right? Correct. So it's almost taking not private in the sense of institutionally private, but private as in personally private, and then kind of preserving that in perpetuity. Right. So the Garden Conservancy is making gardens that probably originated as they were private, mm -hmm. and that they often become semi-public. Mm -hmm. People open their garden. Uh. And then so it's and when the when the owner can no longer take care of the garden, sometimes mm -hmm. it's at the end of their life or for mm -hmm. other reasons, then it becomes on some level public. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not open every day, but it's so there's often a board formed to do that. Mm -hmm. This trust for public land, that's an organization it's particularly active in cities mm -hmm. and it facilitates okay conservancies so mm -hmm. how do you preserve or restore a public space a park the the public resources are always limited so mm -hmm. there's ebbs and flows with budgets so without so around in the 1970s if you historically as, as i understand that that's when i was born but i wasn't uh, <laughs> i wasn't studying this at that point it was a low point for some public spaces mm -hmm. like the, like new york city mm -hmm like high crime, public gardens and landscapes were very degraded. So in the 1980s, the Central Park Conservancy was one of the early park conservancies. Mm -hmm. And so this Trust for Public Land helps facilitate more or less putting in place management strategies. Oh, great. And, and often private money too. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it could be an individual or a business or a corporation that donates to this conservancy that is not public but that cooperates with, with the parks department, with the public sector, and helps raise private money, hopefully within the interest, the best interest of the public. Mm -hmm. And they describe sort of the, there's a document which goes over all this, which I'm reading from, and sort of like the, the profile of what a conservancy would be, mm -hmm. that they'd have a very large corporate board, a board that would be very diverse. So you'd mm -hmm. have... Maybe there's doctors, lawyers, teachers, accountants, people that are experts in architecture, in landscape, mm -hmm. people from the business world. So it's very diverse, private citizens mm -hmm. that have an interest. So a diverse, large board, the administration, they try to keep that quite small. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so some of them, I mean, the norm would be they would not have big maintenance staffs, mm -hmm. but it's this sort of governing body 
that's diverse enough would hopefully keep the, the public's best interest. I'm willing to bet they have big event staff, though. Or at oh, least right. dedicated events staff. You're right. I'm just thinking of walking through Central Park during the time of year that they plan their big gala, which, again, the whole purpose is to generate funds to keep the organization going and preserve mm -hmm. the, the land. But it is a, like, tents and lighting and I'm sure catered food and you know you're really inviting people to participate through their funds which you know is is a great way to to be engaged with landscape if you're not like mm -hmm. a gardener but you love it and, and have the resources like why not you know <laughs> why events? not buy a table at the, at the good old conservancy gala yeah the the uh, New York Times photographer Bill Cunningham he would document all his events Mm -hmm. And there was one, it's a famous luncheon that's held in Central Park. It's a fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And so the hats, the hats that, that, that the women would wear, just legendary, you know, these yeah. custom, ornate, elaborate, you know, decadent. <laughs> and so that's sort of, I mean, it's entertainment for the people that visit. And then that helps raise money for the, for the dead and the like. Like myself, you know, that's that's walking through that it's maintained that mm -hmm. someone's caring for it. Yeah, and all that stuff does take work. So, all right. So, anything else to share with us on this topic? This is just, I guess, sort of a survey of some, sort right. of how this works and and thinking through this concept and how, especially how well this can work when it does work well. And mm -hmm. we're very excited to to do more exploration of some of the Houston parks and the Houston Botanical Garden which should be I think it's opening sections and I'd like this opening and unveiling oh, is very right. exciting too. The so. Houston Botanic Garden just <laughs> opened. They had like a ribbon cutting this past week. Mm. So I look forward to getting over there. So Central Park is this great sort of iconic representation of this and even the Garden Conservancy now is starting to to get on in years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was born in the 80s so I don't want to say how many years but <laughs> but the idea that you know Many of these efforts are actually quite fresh. So it's not right. like this is, oh, somebody back in the 20s or even earlier set aside money from their, you know, commodities <laughs> fortune. And that's the only way we can get these, these things built. There's a lot of these like exciting projects all over probably the country and the world as we're trying to green spaces and kind of reclaim them and, mm -hmm. and make it a healthy again, kind of release valve for the people that live in these spaces. Yeah, I'm finding it. These public green spaces are more valuable than ever because mm -hmm. we're not traveling. Mm -hmm. We're working mm -hmm. a lot from home offices. And right. These public green spaces, the place you can be outside safely, you know, that they're so valuable. And that's really just like within one lifetime, if we're yeah. thinking like the 1980s. Yeah. So this document is the public spaces private money, the triumphs and pitfalls of urban park conservancies. Oh, and that's they, great. And they really go through, you know, mm -hmm. the the scale of each of them, the boards and the man, like sort of like landscape, like current events. Adrian Benepe was New York City Parks Commissioner. Mm -hmm. And then he was very involved. He became the vice president of the Trust for Public Land. Mm -hmm. And so when I would attend uh, Metro Hort meetings in, in, in Central Park, like a Amongst professionals, he was he's, he was often there, and so he was just appointed. I mean, he's had a long career, so he's appointed the president or CEO of the Brooklyn Botanic Garden recently. Oh, nice. So that's like sort of full circle, you know. Yeah, very um, nice. So a principle that comes to mind is boundaries. So these mm. public-private in the mental collection, 
there's a subtle sense that you're entering a a curated neighborhood mm-hmm. and there's still people planting flowers and so it's not that it's this sterilized neighborhood mm-hmm. but there's there's like a level of design intent that you can feel and within these public parks you know in various cities the people that are maintaining it have a uniform there's signage there's benches mm-hmm. trash receptacles lighting that there is and that wayfinding that you talk about right and that that can be it can be subtle there's all different levels and yeah so it's beautiful visiting these successful spaces and learning from them that's what i'm always trying to do and the boundaries i think it's really on a case-by-case basis what's what's needed Mm -hmm. in new york city there's often needs to be a fence so you don't walk through the planting beds because there's just so many people yeah where in the metal collection it's not that you don't have tens of thousands of people walking through it so you don't need that heavy-handedness Interesting. All right. So that wraps up this week's episode of In the Landscape. Thank you so much for listening and participating, being in touch with us. We're really, really delighted and um, hope you get an opportunity to check out some public-private space (laughs) in the near future. If there's a great one in your area, share that with us. We'd love to learn more. And until next week, thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.